Welcome to the Servants of Grace podcast hosted by Dave Jenkins. Our podcast exists to provide trustworthy expository messages through the Bible and faithful answers to your theology questions. Now for today's episode, let's join our host, Dave Jenkins. Well, welcome back to the Servants of Grace podcast. My name is Dave and I'm the host for this show. And on today's episode, we're going to continue our series through the book of Psalms. Looking today at Psalm 68, 19 through 35, an awesome in his sanctuary. Would you please join me now in prayer? Heavenly Father, we thank you that, that your word has so much to say to us, that it, that it teaches us about your enemies, it teaches us about your people, you teach us about your judgment, you teach us about your love. And at the end of the day, you are the God who never changes. You remain the same. You are always faithful and true. And you always act according to your revealed will in your word. So Lord, as we look at this text before us today, may it remind us that yes, you will judge your enemies. And yet, even in the midst of judging your enemies... You desire them to come to a saving knowledge of yourself through Christ in the revealed word. So we thank you, Lord, that you are long-suffering, that you are patient, and that you are good, desiring, as 2 Peter 3, 9 says, that none should perish but come to eternal life. So, Lord, I pray today even perhaps that through the preached word, that you might draw sinners to yourself, that they might be saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And Lord, I pray for my brothers and sisters in Christ. Lord, may we be bold. May we not compromise. May we, may we not try to smooth the rough edges of, of passages like we're going to look at today, but may we believe, believe, that your word is true and may we proclaim it without fear and without apology and may we boldly declare the goodness of God and the justice of God all for the glory of God in Jesus name amen well if you have your bibles go ahead and open them to psalm 68 19 through 35 psalm 68 19 through 35 And hear what the word of the Lord has to say to us today. Blessed be the Lord who daily bears us up. God is our salvation. Our God is a God of salvation. And to God the Lord belong deliverances from death. But God will strike the head of his enemies. The hairy crown of him who walks in his guilty ways. The Lord said, I will bring them back from Bashan. I will bring them back from the depths of the sea. That you may strike your feet in their blood. That the tongues of your dogs may have their portion from the foe. Your procession is seen, O God, the procession of my God, my King, into the sanctuary. The singers in front, the musicians last. Between them, virgins playing tambourines. Bless God. In the great congregation, bless uh, the Lord, O you who are of Israel's fountain. There is Benjamin, the least of them, in the lead. The princes of Judah in their throng. The princes of Zebulun, the princes of Naphtali. Summon your power, O God, the power of God by which 
you have worked for us. Because of your temple at Jerusalem, kings shall bear gifts to you. Rebuke the beasts that dwell among the reeds, the herd of bulls with the calves of the people. Trample, trample underfoot those who lust after tribute. Scatter peoples who delight in war. Nobles shall come from Egypt. Cush shall hasten to stretch out her hand to God. O kingdom of, of the earth, sing to God. Sing praises to the Lord. To him who rides in the heavens, the ancient heavens. Behold, he who sends out his voice, his mighty voice. Ascribe power to God, whose majesty is over Israel, and whose power is in the skies. Awesome is the Lord from his sanctuary. The God of Israel, he is the one who gives power and strength to his people. Blessed be God. This is the reading of God's holy, precious word. Psalm 68 was the battle cry of the Huguenots, the valiant Christians who established a strong Reformed church in France, but were ultimately expelled by the bloodthirsty Roman Catholic princes. During the siege of Chateau Arquis in 1589, the Protestant forces were threatened with destruction by an army of the Catholic League. As fog fell, the Huguenot artillery was unable to fire, and the relieving force under Henry of Navarre became demoralized by the numerical superiority of the enemy. As his lines began to waver, Henry cried aloud, Come, lift the psalm. The Huguenots' rang, ranks rang out with the words of Psalm 68 and renewed their assault. Soon, the fog lifted and the Protestant cannons fired in cadence with the psalm as the enemy forces were put to flight. David desired for Psalm 68 to have a similarly inspiring effect on the life of all believers today. The key to this psalm is to realize that David describes God's victory not merely over our enemies, but also over his enemies, with the aim of gathering his people before him to glory in the grace of God. And the first thing that we need to understand is that this is all to the praise of God. The French Huguenots mainly desired the right worship according to Scripture. After Henry of Navarre's victory, this freedom of worship was secured by the Edict of Nantes. And yet, according to David in Psalm 68, it is God who permanently secures the freedom of his people to worship and to share the gospel. In verse 19 of this psalm, David says, Blessed be the Lord, who daily bears us up. God is our salvation. And since God's glory is a reason for our salvation, our response to God's mercy should be to praise his name. And the fact that Christians may call on the Creator as our God, as verse 20 says, and then know him as the God of our salvation, is ample reason enough for us to do as this psalm is telling us, in verse 19, to bless the Lord. And when David speaks of God as our salvation, he reminds us that God's saving grace daily bears us up in verse 19. The image here is that of a shepherd who takes up his arms, a sheep that is lame, weak, or wayward, and delivers it to safety. God does not deliver his people from sin and oppression and then abandon them to be destroyed. Rather, God daily watches over his people and actively intervenes to lift them up and to keep them from being swept away by a world of evil. Whereas we tend to grow weary in the care of others, whether they're small children, infirm relatives, or even needy friends, God does not grow weary in bearing his people. 
Knowing God's daily care, believers should praise God and even offer ourselves to God in his service every day. As an example of God's constant mercy, David speaks of God's delivering his people from death in verse 20. And to God the Lord belong deliverances from death. This means that in addition to preserving our lives daily in ways that we're often not even aware of through faith, uh, God also delivers us from fear and the dread of death. Death is the curse of sin on fallen mankind. And yet God has conquered death through the atoning sacrifice of his son, Jesus Christ. Now, God not only delivers his people from death, but also causes trials, sorrows, and losses to serve our eternal gain in the age to come. God has made death the servant of Christ's resurrection, so that anyone who trusts in Jesus not only dies with him to the world, but also reaps with Christ the benefits of eternal life. Knowing that this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison, as 2 Corinthians 4.17 says, Christians rejoice in God even with tears on their cheeks. Next, let's consider God's striking of his enemies. In lands where Christians worship without fear of persecution, it's hard for us to grasp the reality of God's daily provision for us. And yet that reality is the, the daily struggle of Christians in Iran, where the, where the spread of Christianity has resulted in official persecution. In 2009, Yusuf Narkani Hani registered his family as Christian so as to avoid sending his family to Islamic education, as he was permitted to do under the constitution of his nation. And despite the legality of his action, Yusuf was arrested and after two years in prison was sentenced to death on the charge of apostasy, his punishment having been upheld by the Iranian Supreme Court. Now, Yusuf's wife was also imprisoned for her faith in Christ, and government authorities threatened to give their children to a Muslim family to be raised. Now, faced with strong international pressure, Yusuf was finally released from prison after over three years, and his family was reunited. Believers who face this kind of persecution do not share the view of some scholars who recoil against David's expression of God's violent judgment of the wicked, but rejoice in God's militant intervention, as we see in Psalm 68:21. God will strike the head of his enemies, the hairy crown of him who walks in his guilty way. The hairy crown, it refers to the strength of man in his full fertility and power. God is able to lop off even the most boastful, wicked head. John Calvin says the enemies of the church are fierce and formidable, and it is impossible that she can be preserved from their continual assaults without vigorous protection being extended. This promise of protection does not mean that God does not permit his people to suffer, but rather that he will not allow his enemies to succeed in destroying the gospel. Although wicked governments may persecute peaceful Christians, such as Yusuf Narkadi, the church will no more be destroyed than when Pharaoh pursued Israel into the Red Sea, or when Herod sent his soldiers to slay the baby boys of Bethlehem. Now David goes on to show how impossible it is for the wicked to evade God's judgment. In verse 22, the Lord says, I will bring them back from Bashan, I will bring them back from the depths of the sea. 
Now, the point is, is that the wicked can never flee or even hide from God so as to escape him. The prophet Amos spoke in similar terms of the Lord's zeal to bring sinners to justice, especially those who would want to do harm to the people of God. In Amos 9, 1 through 2, it says, Not one of them shall flee away. Not one of them shall escape. If they dig into Sheol, from there my hand shall take them. If they climb up to heaven, from there I will bring them down. Psalm 68, 23 is considered especially bloodthirsty by those who reject the Bible's teaching of divine judgment. That you may strike your feet in their blood, that the tongues of your dogs may have their portion from the foe. This statement not only shows God is judging, but also causes his people to exult in the overthrow of his enemies. William Plummer explains, Whatever appearances there may be to the contrary for a season, and yet, in all cases, ultimately, God will make his church triumphantly victorious to the eternal shame of her enemies. Afflicted Christians are comforted both by their knowledge of God's justice and the triumph of his gospel. As sinners, we are forbidden to gloat over the judgment of the wicked, being instead called to offer gospel mercy to fellow sinners. Jesus commanded us to worry about the beam in our own eye rather than to emphasize the speck in another in the eye of another. In Matthew 7, 2-3, which says, For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. Therefore, we desire mercy for all. And remember that heaven most fervently rejoices whenever a single sinner repents and believes the gospel for forgiveness, as we see in Luke 15, 7. Moreover, we cannot even discern between God's ultimate enemies and God's elect people who have not yet been converted. And therefore, we must always labor in the gospel, hoping that yet another violent persecutor like Saul of Tarsus may be converted into a Paul and become a trophy of the saving grace of God. And yet, in the end, God's enemies will be destroyed, causing great rejoicing from the sanctified souls in heaven. It is there and then when our souls are perfected in holiness that believers may attain to the spirit-inspired rejoicing over God's judgment that we see in this psalm. The enemies who have been judged will include not only malicious spiritual powers such as the devil, but also men and women who hated God and warred against his people. The book of Revelation contains songs of joyful praise in which the glorified spirits rejoice in heaven over the downfall of both Satan and his wicked allies. Revelation 11, 17-18 says this, We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty. The nations raged, but your wrath came, destroying the destroyers of the earth. It's popular today to scoff at the idea of God's vengeful wrath against sinners. And yet, Scripture plainly reveals the vast, the terrible, the eternal condemnation awaiting those who oppose the will of God and refuse to honor Christ in penitent faith. Hebrews 10.31 says, It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Reflecting on Psalm 68.23, Plummer comments, Surely the Lord would not use such terrific language as he does respecting the doom of sinners. If it were not inconceivably dreadful, nothing can protect persistent and obstinate offenders from the sword of divine justice. And so rather than condemn the violent language of the Bible, we should humble ourselves before God's holy throne, confessing our sin and laying hold of the forgiveness that Jesus offers through faith in his atoning blood. Where if you realize how dreadful will be the punishment of those who remain in their sins through unbelief, 
we should also take up the calling of spreading the gospel with renewed fervency and fervent prayer. Now, let's consider the next point, the tribe's procession. In the first half of Psalm 68, we've, we've considered that it's most likely said in was the ascension of the Ark of the Covenant up to Mount Zion. David looked back on the Exodus journey of God's people and saw it culminating in the Ark's enthronement at Jerusalem. In the second half, David is looking to God's salvation for his people in the future. And he declares that God will save his people, daily bearing them up and striking down the violent enemies of the gospel. And so the psalm concludes by returning to the ark and the tabernacle, picturing the universal worship that God will gain for himself. Both the salvation of his people and the judgment of his enemies serve the same purpose of bringing glory to God. Psalm 68.35 says, Awesome is God from his sanctuary. Blessed be God. Psalm 68.24 describes the ark's ascension when it says, Your procession is seen, O God, the procession of my God, my King, in the sanctuary. See, God has waged war in the world, saving his people, striking his foes, and now returns to his throne to receive the worship he deserves. His grateful people are waiting. Verses 25 through 26 says, The singers in front, the musicians last, between them virgins playing tambourines. Their song of adoration praises God as a source of life for his people, saying, Bless God in the great congregation, the Lord, O you who are of Israel's fountain. If these verses reflect the glorious procession when David first led the Ark of the Covenant up to Mount Zion, they also form what George Horn calls a prelude to that voice of universal exaltation, which the Christian church in her holy services now celebrates the resurrection and ascension of her Redeemer. And as God proceeds up to Mount Zion, David sees the tribes of his people also parading up with the Lord. Verse 27 says, There is Benjamin, the least of them, in the lead, the princes of Judah in their throng, the princes of Zebulun, the princes of Naphtali. We know from 1 Chronicles 13.5 that all the tribes of Israel were represented. And so David mention uh, of these tribes symbolizes the nation as a whole. Since Benjamin and Judah were the, the southernmost tribes and Zebulun and Naphtali were the most distant northern tribes. So perhaps Benjamin led because Israel's first king, Saul, hailed from that tribe and also because Jerusalem lay within its territory. We might also explain the prominent role of the tribes David mentions during the earthly ministry of Jesus so that David's prophecy of worship points forward to the gospel age. Jesus began his ministry in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, and most of his early followers dwelt there in those lands. Jesus himself was a Messiah from the land of Judah, so that his own life encompassed the territory that David highlights north to south. And this imagery, it reminds us that the gathering of God's people for worship is not so much the means, but the end of our salvation. And it's true that we must say that worship blesses the believer and is often used by God to grow the church through new converts. But the worship of God is never merely the means of those blessings. Our focus in coming to church, in other words, should never rest on what we will gain from the service or how the world might be reached, much less on the lower aims such as our desire for social interaction or business connections. 
Preeminently, the worship of God is a great end to which everything else serves, so that we come to God mainly to praise Him as the God of our salvation, who has daily borne us up and has overthrown our enemies of Satan's sin and death. God commanded Pharaoh to release Israel for this very reason in Exodus 5.1. Let my people go that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. Likewise, God has triumphed through Jesus Christ so that his church may exalt his glory in adoring, adoring worship, saying, as verse 19 says, Blessed be the Lord. Now let's consider the nations being summoned to God. And as David contemplates the ascension of the ark and prophecies the saving works of God, he sees not only the worship of Israel, but the gathering of people from all the nations to worship the Lord. In fact, the final vision of Psalm 68 reminds us that God militantly preserves his gospel so that sinners from every tribe, tongue, nation, and people group may be saved by him. And first, David foresees the homage of rulers from afar in verse 29. Because of your temple at Jerusalem, kings shall bear gifts to you. Christians see this prophecy as fulfilled in the gifts brought to baby Jesus from the Magi from the east in Matthew 2, 1-12, through 12, realizing that this first offering to Christ represented the homage of all nations to the Savior. And in addition to the homage of kings, David sees the nations themselves streaming up to the temple to worship the Lord. In Psalm 68, 31, it says, Nobles shall come from Egypt, Cush shall hasten to stretch out her hand to God. In David's day, Egypt was a powerful kingdom, representing world hostility to true religion, while Cush, modern-day Ethiopia, was a distant land representing people at the ends of the earth. In the early church, the Egyptian city of Alexandria became a leading center of Christian faith under the leadership of great theologians such as Athanasius. David's son Solomon received the homage of the Ethiopian queen of Sheba in 1 Kings 10, 1-13. And David's prophecy would also be fulfilled in the conversion of the Ethiopian eunuch saved through the witness of Philip in Acts 8.26-39. These examples show how David's picture was literally fulfilled even as it symbolized the wider scope uh, and sweep of gospel history by which believers from all nations have stretched out their hand to God in Jesus' name. And it's right that the Lord should be praised from every nation and every tribe and people group since he is sovereign over the entire earth. And therefore David pleads in Psalm 68, 32-33, O kingdoms of the earth, sing to God, sing praises to the Lord. To him who rides in the heavens, the ancient heavens, behold, he sends out his voice, his mighty voice. God's heaven shines down on all the lands just as the clouds of God ride through the earth. And therefore, it is right that God should be honored and praised throughout his creation. This call, the gathered disciples, is now Christ's great commission to his church, which Christ gave in Matthew 28, 18-20, which says, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded." And so the call of the gospel throughout the world is accompanied by a warning of judgment to the wicked, to which David prays in Psalm 68:30, which says, Rebuke the beasts that dwell among the reeds, the herds of bulls with the calves of the people. 
This plea reminds Christians that in this world, we will never be free from opposition and worldly danger, but will always have to pray for God's protection from evil powers. The beast among the reeds, it refers to crocodiles, depicting the malice of Egypt, where, while the bulls and the followers' calves denote the oppression, the troubles, and the seducers of the nations. These enemies will be trampled under God's feet, just as those who delight in slaughter and conquest will be broken and dispersed. Psalm 68.30 says, Trample underfoot those who lust after tribute, scatter the people who delight in war. These are calls for judgment. Just like the earlier depiction of God's violent assault on the wicked, urge each one of us to renounce our allegiance to sin and turn to God through faith in His Son, Jesus Christ. Only through faith in Him may we, as Jesus put it, not come into judgment, but pass from death to life, as John 5.24 says. Now let's talk about God's glory through covenant grace as our next point. David credits this gathering of the nations as well as the smiting of the wicked to God's power alone in verse 28 of this psalm, which says, Summon your power, O God, the power of God by which you have worked for us. Israel could survive in the world only by God's preserving might. And in the same manner, the preservation of the church, the spread of the gospel, the ingathering of the nations to Christ can only happen by the sovereign power of God. John 6.44 says, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And if this is true, then world evangelism can succeed only as God sovereignly opens blind eyes to see and regenerates spiritually dead hearts to believe. As Jonah declared from within the great fish, salvation belongs to the Lord in Jonah 2.9. Those of us who believe the Bible's teaching and realize our complete dependence on God's power will commit ourselves to prayer, pleading with David, as verse 28 of Psalm 68 says, Summon your power, O God, the power of God, by which you have worked for us. And David relies not merely on God's power in a general sense, but specifically on God's power as it's gloriously revealed at the temple. Verse 31 of this psalm says, Awesome is God from his sanctuary. The God of Israel, he is the one who gives power and strength to his people. The tabernacle administered God's covenant grace to Israel. By picturing God's power emanating from the sanctuary, David shows that saving grace always flows from the promises and the blessing secured by God's covenant with his people. John Calvin says any right which Israel might have in distinction from others to trust in the guardianship of God rested entirely upon that covenant of free grace by which they had been chosen to be God's particular blessings. Now, the Old Testament types and pictures presented at the tabernacle look forward to their fulfillment in the coming of Jesus Christ. On the night of his arrest, Jesus enshrined the meaning of death he was about to suffer in Matthew 26, 28, which says, this is, my, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. As he prepared to endure his atoning death on the cross, Jesus promised the ingathering to which David referred to in Psalm 68 in John 12, 31-32, uh, which says, Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. By drawing all people, Jesus meant the gathering of believers from all tribes and nations, and thus the fulfillment of the prophecy of David. You see, the cross was God's means of raising his true temple. 
where God is awesome in his sanctuary in the midst of a sin-redeemed people. From the cross flows Christ's covenant grace out to the world. The cross is where sinners may meet with God for salvation, coming in adoring faith to be washed for our sins. And from the cross where Jesus died for sin, God gives power and strength to his people, as we see in Psalm 68:35, and tramples underfoot all those who lust after earthly riches and power. It is therefore at the cross that God's adoring people cry and praise, as verse 35 says, Blessed be God. And at the cross we plead with sinners to believe, saying, Awesome is God from his sanctuary, as we see in verse 35. Now, we need to ask the question, What message does Psalm 68 offer to a believer such as Pastor Yosef Narkandi, huddled alone in his cell, wondering whether he will be pulled out and hanged for his faith in Jesus? Their answer is that through faith in Christ, God will bear him up to face today's trouble and deliver him from the power of death. Even if a believer loses his life, his spirit flies immediately into the presence of Christ, as we see in Philippians 1.23, while his body waits for its final resurrection upon Christ's return. And meanwhile, nothing that evil men can do will ever defeat the gospel or destroy the church that belongs to the Lord. This promises what the Huguenots believed during the years of war advancing the gospel cause. Earlier, I explained that the victory of Henry of Navarre with his army singing Psalm 68 into battle, it resulted in the Edict of Nantes, which secured freedom of religion in France. Eventually, however, that edict was unrighteously revoked, prompting the slaughter of thousands of Huguenots and their exile to England, Holland, and the United States, so that France has dwelled in spiritual darkness ever since. The English Puritans also delighted in Psalm 68, often singing its refrain in battle against the Papist armies of Charles I. Their faith secured victory, producing the Westminster Confession of Faith and the spreading of biblical religion throughout Britain. And yet, after Oliver Cromwell's oppressive regime, the Puritan legacy was largely eradicated from England, and under the restored Catholic monarchy, the Puritan preachers were expelled from their churches. Where then is the victory over which David rejoices in Psalm 68? Dr. James Boyce answers, The church of the... The goal of the church of God in this age is not military triumphs, however noble or highly motivated they may be, any more than its methodology is to be the world's methodology. He says, Our commission is to preach the gospel of salvation by the grace of God through faith in Jesus Christ throughout the whole world and leave the conquest of the world to Jesus. This is because he alone is king. Indeed, he is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. He is in complete control of all things. He will reign in power. All nations will come to him, and before him every knee will bow. Philippians 2, 10-11 says, And every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Knowing this, every Christian should re- rejoice in the Lord, trusting the God who is awesome in his covenant grace, and declaring through our lives that are devoted to him, Blessed be God. You know, a passage like this, it reminds us of a couple things. It reminds us that God's justice is true. It reminds us that God's love is true. It reminds us that God's goodness is true. And it reminds us that God's grace is real. We, we too often, we try to pit the justice of God and the love of God against each other. And yet, in a passage like this, what we see is they meet. 
And they meet ultimately, of course, in the person and the work of Christ, who says in John 19.30, it is finished. But supremely, we need to understand the power of God. We need to stop trusting in our, in our own devices, in our own methods, in our own methodology, in our own way of seeing things. We need to begin to see things through what the Bible, how the Bible says them, sees them. That God made the world in which we live in. That's, that's Genesis 1 and 2. And yet we fell into sin. That's the fall. And even in the midst of the fall, what God desires is to bring reconciliation between God and man, as Genesis 3.15 says, and as we see uh, fulfilled in passages like John 19.30 and 2 Corinthians 5.21, which God desires to reconcile men through the death, burial, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And yet there's coming a day when we, we will be totally like the Lord. We will be with the Lord. We will be with Him forever. And that's consummation. And yet behind creation, fall, a reconciliation, a restoration, and restoration or consummation is the Lord. It's His power. It's His power. It's His character. Now we know from Titus 1-2 that that God never lies, that God will always act consistently and he will always act coherently with his revealed word. And this is so important for us to understand because in the midst of our own times, we see great distress. We see a great deal, many issues happening in our own country, in the United States and all throughout the world. And yet we need to understand that as David is saying that the Lord is awesome. He's awesome in his power. He's majestic in his attributes. He's glorious in all splendor. And what that means at the end of the day is we can take his word to the bank. We can believe that, that God is true and that his promises, as 2 Corinthians 1.20 says, are yes and amen because of Christ. And at the end of the day, that's the most beautiful thing because we all face trials. We all face difficulties. And we all need to understand more of the power of God and we, we need to understand that this God, he is upholding the world by the word of his power. He's, he's orchestrating all things in our lives for our good, turning around, as Genesis 50, 20 says, what was meant for evil, and turning it around and using it for his good. Even that difficult person, that challenging situation in your life is not beyond the gaze of God. God sees, God knows, God cares. And because of Christ, God loves. Do you believe this God? Do you believe that he is awesome in might, awesome in, in splendor, glorious in power? And if so, are you trusting him? Are you taking him at his word even today, even right now? Because the Huguenots did, other men have, and women, and perhaps you have as well. You know, it's easy during seasons of challenge and hardship to forget the power of God. And yet we need the reminder. We need the instruction. We need the whole Bible, the 66 books, because what they do is they teach us. They instruct us. They help us to walk in a manner worthy of the calling that we've received, as Paul talks about in Ephesians 5. See, God is faithful. God is true. God is immutable. He, is ne he never changes. He will always act in line with his word, and he will always do all that he has revealed in Scripture. 
And that is such a comforting reality. In the midst of our trials, and yes, even in the times where things are good, it reminds us that the character of God is steady. He's faithful. He's going to act as he said he would. And he will always do according to his revealed word. What's so great about a psalm like this is it reminds us of these things. It instructs us. It, it encourages us to press in, not run away from, but to press in and run towards the Lord. Run more towards his glory. Run more towards his promises. Read more of his word. Dive deeper into the fountain of the promises of God revealed in the word. And and the more that we do, the more that we find stability and we find rest for our weary, troubled souls. And this is why we need psalms like this. This is why the church has preached on psalms just like this. Because we need them to help us to, to keep steadfast in our mission, to make disciples, to reach the lost, all for God's glory and for his praise. Let's pray. Father, we are so thankful that your word is true, that it is sufficient, that it is enough for us. It's for our life. It's for our godliness. We thank you for the clarity of Scripture. We thank you that Scripture is binding on our lives. We thank you that you take the word that we have heard today and you aim to plant it deep into the soil bed of our hearts. So, Lord, you are so, this, this is so beyond us. You are so awesome and so glorious and so incredibly beautiful and wonderful. Lord, help us to just comprehend a sliver of this and may it seep more and more in not just into our minds, these theological truths and realities, but may these truths seep deeper and deeper into our hearts that we might trust your sovereignty that we might praise your name more, that we might tell other people about the glory of our great God and King in Jesus. In your precious name, amen and amen. Thank you for listening to the Servants of Grace podcast today. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe, leave a rating on the app, and share our episode with your friends and family. If you'd like to, you can follow us on Instagram at Servants of Grace, on Twitter at Servants of Grace, or by searching Servants of Grace on Facebook. You can also find this podcast on the front page of our website at servantsofgrace.org.